You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and my friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. How are you guys doing? Doing good. good. How are you, Abby? I am doing fabulous. Fabulous. Um, We were just talking before we started about decorating. And so I hear that Susan decorates a lot for Halloween. And I don't know about well, we, Carrie. We, tell we, me about we your decorations. Do we decorate a little bit for Halloween. We moved into a new house this last year and I, I've been buying some, you know, things for the front. And I have these fantastic um, they're these giant pumpkins that are probably about mm, they're about two and a half feet tall and they're made out of grapevines. So I have those Ooh. and then yeah, like they're really cool. I actually got them at our local grocery store. It's crazy. It's one of those like, you know, you're walking in and there's all that stuff out front. Uh-huh. And I was like, hmm. So I'm all about like easy and lasting. So nothing I have to like assemble too much mm-hmm. <laughs> or or things like that. But, you know, something I can, you know, go put up in the attic when it's done. And I, I, like, I like decorations that can um, kind of transcend a little time. So, you know, if I can cover Halloween and Thanksgiving together, it's good. Um, at our house for Halloween, we have, we have a circle driveway. And so, um, what we do is we, um, we sit out, I I live in this neighborhood where, um, the houses are kind of spaced out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Our our trick-or-treaters generally don't walk from house to house. They're usually in like, truck beds and trailers and things like that. And there's like a little, (laughs) there's these, these groups of kids that will, you'll go to a house together. And so like my, my mom and my aunt and my cousin will come over and, and sometimes we have some other people and we just all, we all, all, all of, all of us sit kind of, we all have our little chairs with our bowls of candy and, um, we drink wine and enjoy the, the evening. And then when kids come, like, each person they go to, it's like a house worth of candy. So you can like at my house essentially cover four houses worth of candy. So it's, it's pretty fun and, and kids, kids get a good um, laugh out of it. Um, so Carrie, what type of decorating do you do? So I love Halloween, like really <laughs> love Halloween. I know, and, really not th- surprised th- about that. I think Halloween actually is the holiday that more people decorate for than any other holiday. I think I saw that last year. I'm the exception to the rule since I don't really do much, but go ahead, Carrie. <laughs> so I I like to be artsy and craftsy. So I um, I have a whole graveyard and <laughs> I have been building it since we moved to Las Vegas, which is the first time I've had a front yard. Because uh, before then, we were, of course, in residency and fellowship and we're living in tiny little shoe boxes. And so now that I have a front yard, I have built all these tombstones. And so, um, so I have all these tombstones. Like we have Dracula. I take the giant foam insulation 
that you get at Lowe's and I strip off the silver on the back and then I take them. I used to do it by hand with a knife. Now I have better saws because I love power tools. Um, and <laughs> so, so how many tombstones have you built during your days? Um, I've got like six, I think. And, but they're, they're sizable. They're like I've got a couple double tombstones. Um, I've got I've got some little ones. They've got you know some have crosses shaped on the top. Some have most of them are just the the routine round ones. I have the Wicked Witch of the East with the shoes and the the striped um, the striped legs coming out. I have Dracula with like six different death dates all crossed out. Um, I have some really big ones. I have to put chains all around them because Las Vegas is a really windy city and we live kind of up on the edge of town right out where there's a, essentially a wind tunnel coming out of the, the mountains and the desert nearby us. And so usually... I don't know, four or five times or so throughout October, um, I have to go around the neighborhood collecting my tombstones because <laughs> every year I secure them differently and every year it doesn't work. Um, and so, so yeah, so I've got, I've got a full graveyard. I put up lights. I've got giant spiders that go all over the, the garage. Every year I try and add a new aspect. So I'm still thinking about what I need to do. I, I'm about due to spruce up the tombstones because they need a new coat of paint and some some love. But um, but that probably means that I need to go buy a new thing of foam and add a couple more tombstones too. Well, I'll tell you, I don't really decorate for Halloween. It's not that I don't think it's fun to do that and cool to do that, but it seems like just Halloween gets here and then just before you know it, it's time to start decorating for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so... I don't decorate for Thanksgiving, but as you guys were talking, or I mean for Halloween, but as you guys were talking, it made me think about one of the funner Halloweens that I had was when I was in high school. And our band at the time, we had about 200 people in our band. And so we would do this haunted house every year and raise to raise money for the band. And now that I think about it, it was really elaborate and ornate. And anyway, I was assigned to this room and each room that you were assigned to you had to come up with your own room and way to scare people. And so our room was pretty <laughs> simple. It was literally just me or another person laying in a casket. And so the casket was shut. And when the casket came open, you know, of course, everybody's anticipating something to happen. The casket slowly comes open. And then really all that happens is the strobe light starts. And then you reach out and start grabbing everybody. And so, oh my <laughs> gosh, and from my perspective, it was so hilarious because people would just... I mean, they knew you were going to do that, but they would just <laughs> scream and go nuts. And that was like one of the funnest... You just got such a thrill when somebody was like screaming, you know, at the top of their lungs when you're doing it. So that that probably had to be one of my fun or Halloween experiences <laughs> back when that's I was a freshman awesome. in high school. <laughs> that is so I don't cool. think so I have a casket. Maybe that's what I need to add to the, the cemetery. You can make a casket that's what out you of need. your foam. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, good. Absolutely. So, you, ooh, you can make a casket and then have like... Hide in it. Um, so, well, not as... A, you, you could hide in it or... But you could have like something like... I'm thinking of like the that curly, shiny stuff that you could put over the top and then mm -hmm. have one of those little fog machines. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Fog That's, come up. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe maybe some sort of like little chain that you could like hear once in a while, like move the top of the casket when somebody's coming uh -huh. by. <laughs> when someone's coming by. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hate to break up our fun discussion, but I'm going to bring up the question of the day from our patient, one of our patients. So the question of the day is, have you ever dealt with a patient that seems to never catch a break as far as getting pregnant or staying pregnant? 
What are your thoughts and feelings from a physician perspective? What do you think, Susan? Oh gosh, I have I have so many of those patients. You know, I I think that um, it's it's hard. It's hard going through the process of trying to conceive and and not being able to or or getting pregnant and then losing a pregnancy. Um, you, you know, having a baby is kind of one of those little girl dreams, and and you never think of you know, what if I can't? That, that's just not something you, you think about when you're growing up. It, it's just, it's one of those things that happens. And, and, and so I, I think a lot of our patients come in with that perspective. Um, I, I think it's important to, especially if we're, you're in the state of mind of feeling that way, is having, having somebody to talk to, whether it's your partner, your girlfriend, a support group, a blog online, um, you know, um, a, a counselor, wh- wh- whatever, whatever you need, you need somebody to talk to, to, to know that, that you're not alone in this. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of really good treatments out there. And, um, r- regardless of what it is, it, it, and some of it is going to depend on what you personally are willing to do. Um, you know, I, I think there's very few people that any of us can't help achieve pregnancy and a baby, but sometimes our, our personal limits are, are things that, that kind of get in the way of those. And so really, um, finding some comfort in, in what you feel comfortable doing. And like I said, reaching out so that you do have somebody to, um, confide in and, and go through this journey with you. What do you think, Carrie? I think that sums it up pretty nicely. I mean, as a as a physician, yeah, I feel like there's definitely patients that we have where you're just like, oh man, you know, they they had it. it it's just one thing after another. And you look at some of your other patients who just sail through. And sometimes it's hard to remember as a physician that you do have patients who sail through because they're not the ones that you remember nearly as much. Like the people who sail through are not the ones that I bond with because I have a couple conversations with them. They they get pregnant and they move on relatively quickly. It's the ones who I'm revisiting the conversation of, okay, this didn't work. Let's try this. This didn't work. Let's try this. And you're going through and you're being some combination of supportive and realistic and coach and mentor and all of these different roles. And and they're the ones that we as physicians really bond with more because we spend more time with them. You know, in a in an REI practice in an infertility experience, it's going really well. You don't really get too attached to your RE because you don't know them. You see them a couple times and then you're gone. Um, it's it's when you really do feel like you know them and they know you because they see your face or your name or your chart and your whole history just pops right into their mind. Like uh, we all have those patients where you see the name, your heart just sinks, going, "Oh my god, I just want her to have a baby so badly," or I just want mm-hmm. them to have a baby so badly. And and sometimes as the physician, I feel like a total jerk because. They look at me and they go, you know, have you seen this before? And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I've seen 
I've seen each individual thing you've gone through in individual patients, but it is very rare that I see all of these things happen to one person like you are getting. Um, but, but it happens. And so you just move forward. What about you, Abby? Well, I think it's important, you know, for some patients to really seek a third person to talk to. I think sometimes when you, I mean, I think sometimes when people have really supportive spouses, that's great. But I think sometimes it just becomes overwhelming for both you and your spouse. And I think it's good to have sort of a neutral person to lean on. issues To really try and seek out a third party to really kind of talk to because it's it's hard. I've been there. It's it's hard. And you know, sometimes it's hard to just keep looking on the bright side when bad things just just keep happening. So, you know, hang in there. I think persistence pays off, which is easy for me to say, but I do find that sometimes patients that can emotionally negotiate multiple hurdles, uh, you know, eventually things go their way, but it's just really hard right when you're in the middle of it and you can't see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. So hang in there, I guess, is the, the key key thing I would say. And so I, I hate to jump from that question to the next thing, but I think in the interest of time, we probably need to move on to our topic of the day. And today we're going to talk about recurrent pregnancy loss. And this actually came uh, from a listener question as well. Someone had questions about recurrent pregnancy loss and we thought, gosh, we just need to talk about this. So kind of why don't we start out, um, Susan, if you don't mind, if you'll just give us sort of your definition of recurrent pregnancy loss and kind of start us out and we'll go from there. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss is pretty simple. If you've had two or more pregnancy losses, um, then it warrants evaluation. Um, that definition did change mm, probably about five or 10 years ago. It used to, we didn't work up... Um, pregnancy losses that were, uh, unless somebody had had at least three and some of them had to be consecutive. I, I think that we have, we have loosened up that definition actually for the, the betterment of our patients and the betterment of medicine. Because uh, I mean, we've all seen those people um, who've, had, who've had two losses, even biochemical losses, and we, we come up with a very definitive um, diagnosis and that way be able to move people towards treatment. So Susan, what do you think about that? I think the definition says that you have to have two intrauterine pregnancies that have been documented. What are your thoughts about that as opposed to having two that are, we just determined just from a blood draw? It Well, I think part of that is one, it depends on where you look up your definition. Um, and two, I think that that part of the definition was probably um, developed at a point when pregnancy tests weren't very good, um, that we needed to be like, we need to see a baby in the uterus. Um, whereas now, you know, if, if, you know, if somebody comes in and, and they've only had, um, you know, they haven't had any documented with blood work, um, Depending on the situation, I, I might wait um, to do a, quite a, as extensive of an evaluation. But if somebody's had blood work that showed a pregnancy loss, I mean, I, I've had a person who had two biochemical pregnancies and she had a translocation. She, she, you know, it, it it's one of those things that I think there are still some people who are um, kind of more sticklers for the definition. Um, I don't tend to be that way because I've seen so many people that there are things that we can intervene to help. Yeah, I think the only people sometimes that are sticklers are insurance companies. Sometimes they're sticklers for the definition, not so much physicians. What do you think, Carrie? 
I was actually going to bring that up. I mean, most <laughs> the time I, when I talk to my patients, I'll say, you know, look, after, after one miscarriage, no, we're, we're not really going to do anything because that's, that's a pretty wide group of people that that affects. And I think it's reasonable to say that could affect anyone. Let's let it go. After two, then I think that's reasonable to start looking into it. Where we start to hit more problems is is really and truly with the insurance companies. Because if they're not going to cover it, it happens to be a pretty expensive workup. And some of it has enough overlap with infertility where sometimes we can get it covered for infertility parts of it covered for infertility, but certainly not all of it. Like you can look at some of the structural evaluations, but not some of the uh, biochemical or genetic reasons. And most often it's the biochemical and genetic that I'm really looking for. Mm-hmm. And and so those are... It's the, the insurance company's definitions that ultimately drive a lot of what we do because... After two, I would love to start looking, but if it's going to cost my patient thousands and thousands of dollars because they're not going to get it covered until three, then then we'll wait for the the third one. And so I'll tell them that pretty straight up of this is what we're looking for. So tell me what you would start with for a workup. So there's two parts of the evaluation um, that you're looking at. There's the structural component, there's the structural component, there's the genetic component. And there's the thrombophilia component. For the structural component, that's pretty straightforward that you can achieve with a vaginal ultrasound. And you want to have some more in-depth component to the vaginal ultrasound um, or to the uterine evaluation, I should say, whether that is a 3D evaluation or a hysteroscopy or a saline sonogram where you put a little bit of uh, saline salt water inside the uterus and then do a vaginal ultrasound. With those things, you are looking at, does the uterus have any abnormalities. Um, Septum is really high on the list of things that can cause pregnancy loss. Um, You want to know, is there a bicornuate uterus where there's two horns or two angles to the uterus where there should just be one kind of cohesive space? Is it a unicornuate uterus where it's it looks more like a banana instead of like a pear. And so there's less space for the the pregnancy to grow. Now those tend to um, show up in later later pregnancy losses rather than earlier pregnancy losses. You know, you want to get an evaluation for those types of things. You want to see if there's any polyps or fibroids that are big poking into the cavity because that's that is a nice, easy thing to find, remove, and potentially make a big difference if you have a big polyp or fibroid. That so why, why is that a problem? So if you've got a big big polyp or big fibroid, those are a polyp is an overgrowth of the endometrium or the lining of the uterus. And a fibroid is essentially an overgrowth of the muscle or the, the, the tougher, thicker layer of the uterus. And they're poking into the cavity. And so instead of having this big, nice open living room for the embryo to just stroll into, park on a couch and set up shop for nine months, um, you have a giant boulder in the way. And so that embryo cannot nestle into the couch, get its its comfy, super soft blankets and pillows all around it and just nuzzle in. It's sitting there on a boulder and it's like, screw this, I'm going home. And it runs away and it doesn't implant because it's it's not a comfortable 
conducive place for pregnancy to grow. And in part, it's not a good place for the embryo to latch in, attach and stick on. And and in part, it's a, a physical barrier where it just can't can't find the room to grow. I usually say too, it's almost like an IUD where it causes kind of irritation, kind of a sterile inflammatory mm-hmm. reaction as well. So yeah, it's definitely good to um, identify those. What are some other things that you'd look at, Susan? So um, some of the other things I would look at, I typically do an HSG to make sure that the tubes are not a not not only open, because we know at least probably one of them is open if you've been getting pregnant, but we want to make sure that there isn't something called a hydrosalpinx, which is a swollen fallopian tube. Um, that fluid within that swollen fallopian tube can actually go back into the uterus and hurt a developing pregnancy. Um, and then from there, I turn mainly to some blood tests. Um, I think it's important to get chromosomes um, on both partners. Um, we know that, you know, it's a chromosome, the, the chromosomes are kind of your, your genetic material. It's what you're going to pass in. The woman's going to pass in her egg and what the man is going to pass in his sperm. And that's the baby making material. And, um, it's important for us to have the right numbers and have all the pieces in the right places. So sometimes in recurrent pregnancy loss, we see that people have the right numbers of chromosomes most likely, but sometimes pieces of the chromosome are hanging out with another chromosome or flipped upside down or different things like that. Um, and we also want to check some hormones like thyroid and prolactin. Um, Your thyroid hormone is um, kind of the hormone that controls your metabolism, but it's very important for um, successful baby making. Um, Prolactin is a hormone produced by your brain that normally makes women get breast milk after um, they have babies, but if it's off, it can interfere with good, healthy implantation. And then I kind of round things out with a panel of labs that look for something called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is a mouthful. We tend to call it APLS for short, and it's an acquired blood clotting condition. And it's usually a constellation of about 13 different tests. Um, And the interesting thing about that test in particular, um, and this actually goes a little bit for um, prolactin as well, is we don't usually... um, make any big decisions based on a single abnormal value. Um, Because when you're looking at, you know, 12 or 13 different tests, um, there's a good chance that one of them might be transiently elevated. So for the APLS, what I typically do is you have to wait 12 weeks um, between the initial test and the next test. But if we see that that next test is um, positive, then we know that you're probably a person that would benefit from getting some blood thinners um, in pregnancy to help decrease your chances of miscarriage. Any other testing that you would do? Do you do tests for clotting disorders? I don't typically do testing for other clotting disorders unless we have second or third trimester miscarriages or a family history of clotting. Um, I know that can that varies from practice to practice, and yeah, and that's um, the, I would say that's definitely something that people vary on. I mean, I don't think the American College of OBGYN supports that, but I will say I do it a lot. <laughs> With that being said, I still do it a lot. How about you, Carrie? Yeah, I still do it. Um, and it's, I'm more inclined to do it with a family history, but I will, I will still 
still do it if anything seems awry. Because um, if you find it and you can do something about it, yeah, and there's a pretty good study that suggested that that clotting disorders like things like factor V Leiden and prothrombin two don't make a difference. But it's it's just hard to tell a patient that has a clotting disorder that oh you have this clotting disorder, but it makes no difference for your fertility. And you know, I sort of chalk it up to there's so many things that we don't know about reproduction that. You know, I usually treat it with something, whether it be just baby aspirin or in some situations, limited situations, sometimes I would treat it with Lovenox if it was a patient that had, you know, multiple miscarriages and we just couldn't find anything else. Um, so, yeah, so that's definitely one that some physicians will do and some physicians won't. Um, anything else that you would do, Carrie, that wasn't previously mentioned? No, I think that's pretty much everything. I mean, I do get the the FSH, day three FSH levels and antral follicle count, um, estradiol, AMH levels, just because if I find out that those are particularly abnormal, Mm -hmm. then I may put more credence on poor egg quality leading to uh, recurrent pregnancy loss, same with sperm count if those are really abnormal. like Maybe that's got a part of it. Not that we can necessarily do as much about it, but a reason is always helpful. One thing that I also um, usually do, and, and kind of backing up from this, one thing that I usually explain to my patients is my evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss is essentially the same evaluation I typically do for somebody who comes to see me for infertility mm-hmm. with a few things added on. Um, and so I also do carrier screening because most of the time when we see, um, when we do carrier screening, you're, you are going to get fragile X premutation testing. And um, even people who may be premutation carriers, they tend to have more problems, not only, you know, problems getting pregnant and potentially staying pregnant. So um, like I said, it's kind of the big picture and then adding on the icing to the cake. So a lot of my patients carry, I end up doing all those tests. And honestly, a lot of them come up and we don't find anything. And so about half of them, know, right? About half of them. And so it feels like more than that sometimes because <laughs> it feels like a, I, I'm frustrated because there's not a lot that I can tell them. And so what would you do in a patient that had a completely normal workup for recurrent pregnancy loss um, in terms of kind of what the next steps are? So next steps in part will depend on what their frequency in getting pregnant is. So some women with pregnancy loss have a very easy time getting pregnant and it's staying pregnant. That's the difficulty. Some women have a difficult time both getting pregnant and staying pregnant. So if you have the fertility component in there, you approach it from the, okay, how do we get you pregnant? And then work on keeping pregnant from there. For the women who can get pregnant easily and it's just the difficulty staying pregnant, there's there's two approaches. Um, one is just the straight TLC approach. And this is the more economical and emotionally much more challenging approach of keep keep trying. And if you get pregnant on your own, we're going to start you right away on progesterone for a little extra support, baby aspirin for a little extra support. And, and essentially, they have much much more communication with me and with my office of coming in more frequently and getting levels monitored, all of that than they would if they just went to their regular OB's office. Now, all of those things have 
somewhat questionable data behind them. I mean, the the data is there depending on which study you're reading and it's <laughs> not there depending on which other study you're reading. So I think TLC is good for everybody. I, yeah, I mean, nobody is going to be hurt from extra extra loving. And sometimes I feel like that is the best thing that I can do for my patients. And occasionally the only thing I can do for my patients. But um, but really, it's, it's giving them that extra monitoring and that extra hand-holding. Because the unfortunate thing about medicine is, in most cases, when someone starts to have a miscarriage, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And so we're checking their progesterone levels, making sure that they're adequate from the beginning and giving them supplementation. The baby aspirin is the thought that it can not only decrease chances of preeclampsia later in pregnancy, but if there is some thrombophilia, it may have a, a bit of a hair of difference there. I typically don't start on the heavier duty anticoagulants unless I've got a diagnosis. So things like heparin or Lovenox, I don't start unless I've got a diagnosis. Um, Are you a believer in things like baby aspirin and progesterone? Because that varies mm-hmm. sometimes from physician to physician. I typically do. I don't think they do any. I don't think they give any harm to the patient um, with progesterone in particular. When someone's pregnant, it's like throwing water at the ocean. I mean, it's it's not going to hurt at all. And so I definitely do that. And baby aspirin also has some other benefits. And so I think that's not going to hurt either. Um, and so I go ahead and, and give both of those. So Susan, say you have the same patient who has had a few miscarriages. Now she's either having trouble getting pregnant or no matter what you do, she just keeps miscarrying. What are your thoughts on that? And what would you recommend? So I think an important thing to understand is that we know that most miscarriages are due to chromosomal abnormalities of the embryo, which means mom's chromosomes are normal, dad's chromosomes are normal, but when egg and sperm come together, fertilization occurs, there's abnormalities. And, you know, in in regular everyday couples, half of the embryos they create are chromosomally abnormal. Um, but, you know, I, I think we have a, a subset of people who these chromosomally abnormal embryos end up implanting, sticking longer than they than they do in the average person. And that that often leads to those those first trimester miscarriages. Um, you know, and, and again, you can you can have those conversations of we can keep doing what we're doing, the expectant management, like Carrie um, said, with a lot of TLC, we can do um, kind of easier fertility therapies like letrozole or Clomid or injectable medications with insemination to kind of help egg and sperm get together and do progesterone support. But those, those things aren't helping the chromosomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are some people who I, I think a lot of the decision of how, how aggressive you need to be, um, ends up being a very, it's a very personal and a very emotional decision. I have personally had, I've had a handful of patients who've had like six, seven, eight miscarriages and went on to have a successful baby, which the data says that if you keep on trying, most people with recurrent pregnancy loss are eventually going to be successful. Now, with that being said, I don't think most people out there have um, kind of the their hearts cannot handle that many losses. Uh, I, I just don't think most people can. And, and for people who 
want to be more proactive. Um, and there is data that supports and refutes this. Again, just like everything else we've talked about today on recurrent pregnancy losses, is I do discuss the option of doing IVF with chromosome testing because then at least we are taking out the factor of we know that um, we've got a very you know, 96 plus percent chance we are putting back a chromosomally normal embryo. And I mean, I can say personally in my practice, I've had a lot of success with that. Um, mm-hmm. It is not 100%. Uh, unfortunately, nothing we do in fertility is 100%. Um, but I, I, I do think it is a, a treatment option to be discussed and it's the right option for some people. Well, and I do think the advantage of IVF is like you just said, you take out about 50% of the reason why people miscarry. You can't guarantee that putting a normal embryo back is the problem, but if it is, then you've pretty much taken care of the problem. And so unfortunately, it's one of those things where, like you said, after a while, if we don't have any other great options, you know, that may end up being the best option. So interestingly enough... I, I would like to make a comment because almost all of my patients with recurrent pregnancy loss who are thinking about IVF ask me, you know, do you expect me to have all chromosomally abnormal embryos? And I can say that is exceptionally rare for the typically fertile I would agree, pregnancy yeah. loss patient. I mean, I I actually can think of one person who that happened to in my career of somebody who I wasn't expecting and had recurrent pregnancy loss and, and that type of situation. Um, so like I said, my theory is those embryos just stick in some women longer than they do in the, in other people who would have just never gotten pregnant. Any final thoughts, Carrie? No, I think that that summarizes it up pretty quickly. I mean, lots of emotional support for some patients. You keep trying and do what you can for other patients. You go straight to IVF with the explanation of this will help some, but not all people, And then we keep going forward. Well, very good. Well, thanks, guys. I hope this has been helpful to our listeners. And so to our audience, I want to say thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. And also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions um, you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Docs segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. We'll see you all soon. Keep sending in those questions. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.